Hey SaaS Insiders, I welcome you to this episode of our show. Today I am interviewing John Demian and there are a lot of reasons why his journey with ILET, which is his company, is amazing. He quickly secured his pre-seed funding by a really creative way and now working towards his seed funding and building his product. Just check out a small episode from it. They'll ask very in-depth questions. And this goes for your uh, investors as well. Um, I've had a lot of meetings right now with investors, and I could tell if that meeting is going to go anywhere by the type of questions that they ask. If they go with generic question, like how many team members are you? What's the market? What's the whatever technical stack you're using? That's good, but that discussion is not going to go anywhere. If they start asking you more detailed questions, that's a really good flag that, you know, they're, they're actually... Yeah, and trust me, there are a lot of things like this in this episode. So make sure to listen till the end to get the maximum value. This episode is sponsored by the SaaS Insiders Studio. We help SaaS founders build their minimum viable products, MVPs, launch quickly, find a product market fit, and grow from there. SaaS Insider Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. SaaS Insiders, welcome to this episode of our show. Today with me, I have John Demian. He is the CEO and the founder of Islet. And today we have a really interesting journey that he'll be sharing with us, with his company and what we can learn from it to apply it in our businesses. With that said, John, thank you for taking your time today. Oh, it's great to be here. I appreciate the invite. In in a few sentences, it's like one minute version. Could you tell SaaS Insiders a bit more about your background, how you came to SaaS and what you're currently working on? All right. Well, um, I started my career basically in 2005 as a developer. I was building Flash components in uh, in ActionScript 1.0. Funny enough, like... I was working for this company that they eventually launched their own SaaS in 2009. And I built the first iteration of that SaaS. It was in Flash. Uh, that's not really important. But what's important is that they've actually just signed as a customer with Thailand right now. So it's just, you know, brings a tear to my eyes. I, I'm really proud of that. But uh, switching back to my career, started as a developer, worked as a developer for like seven years or so. And then I kind of got interested in the marketing aspect of whatever our colleagues were doing in the marketing department, kind of switch over gears, started from scratch with them. And I worked as a marketeer ever since. Okay. Seven years. Wow. I, I know a lot of founders in the SaaS, they come from the technical background, but it's mm -hmm. like the marketing, it's the sales, it's the positioning that, that actually makes the business happen. So how that transition worked for you? Like, was it like super easy, super easy switch or there was some, some kind of struggle there? Well, there was a lot of struggle because I had no formal education uh, in marketing. The, it, it's kind of like it is today where you have this entire taxonomy of things you need to learn, like from, you know, CLTV to all the acronyms that the marketing 
team has to work with. I had no idea what they, they were, but I did have a very logical and technical expertise. So I was very analytical in my approach. And what I started with is with uh, SEO. So my first year as a marketeer wannabe, I built 2,300, so 2,300 blogs on WordPress that took content automatically, translated it in like 20 something languages and posted on these different blogs uh, just to do SEO. And I had like interlinking and stuff. And I could rank any keyword on the planet in any language, basically in a matter of hours. So I probably, let's say two days on the first or second position. This was like 2013, I think. Obviously that doesn't fly with Google. So all of those domains got banned like a month later, but still as, a, as an experience, like an experiment, it was really fun. But naturally then I uh, kind of made my way towards the you know content marketing side of things. I started working with a lot of developer tooling companies because of my background as a developer, it gave me a unique point of view. I kind of understood how to address these technical audiences that um, were, you know, tougher to sell to. Um, developers are really smart. So, you know, you can't really market to them in the same way as you would probably, you know, other types of audiences. Uh, I'd like to think that I made a difference and I kind of helped those companies out a little bit. Okay. So, John, fast forward to Islet. What what's yeah. your currently? What's your mission, and where do we go with this with the startup? Islet is trying to be a customer success platform that focuses on the end user, uh, meaning that Islet should pro- will provide and does provide the tools necessary for a, a product owner or a marketer to interact and create the experiences with the with their customers and their users without having to rely on a developer. It's a mm-hmm. 100% no-code solution. We, we want it to be a no-code solution first and then add all the bells and whistles like an API if, if you want to use it. We do have it, but that comes second. We, we don't even focus on it. And I know we talked a little bit off the air about this, but I think it would be curious to, for others to know. You mentioned that to kick off Islet, you actually acquired some kind of product, some kind of software and took it from there. Could, could you share that story, please? Yeah, of course. So so we were doing as an agency, me and my colleague, Andre, we, we, we've been doing these, um, uh, working with SaaS companies and implementing onboarding walkthroughs and guides and so on and so forth. But we were doing manually and we kept running into the same issue. Every time we wanted to change something, we had to go to a through a de- deployment process, which is not something you want to do, especially when you have a large scale enterprise solution. Uh, you can't just push you know, deployments to production every, every time you, you want to change something. So we knew we wanted to develop something and we started developing something around 2020, but it was really slow. And we wanted to accelerate the process. So we ended up buying a company in Belarus. They had a, they had a product that did tours, but it was more of a tool than a service. So what we did was we took that, we integrated it with our vision, made a bunch of tweaks to it, and then uh, turned it into what Islet is today. We wanted the, the goal was buy the company, polish it a little bit, and take it to the investors. And use it, use that as an MVP to get money. So I won't go into too much details on uh, pricing, but uh, let me put like this: we raised about eight times more what that what we spend on it, 
in a matter of like probably three months. So we spent a dollar and then we raised eight dollars on top of it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't want to ask the specifics, but I was curious. It probably let you like speed up the process to Quite raise the pre-seed pretty much like you just do it. And if you Instantly, were to do it yeah. probably manually, meaning go and implement it from scratch, that would probably take much more time. Oh, at least a year. At least a year. And it will cost a lot because development is not a straightforward line. You know, you, you, you kind of know where you're heading, but there's always going to be these twists and turns, like extra features, uh, books, uh, you know, whatever. The platform just got an update. You need to do a bunch of reworks around it. So, yeah, that helped us a lot. That's an interesting strategy, John. Like, we rarely hear those things because by the conventions, usually SaaS founder needs to go and invest a ton of money, shit ton of effort, hire a team, I'll go no code, build it, struggle with it. And you went like, let's just acquire it. What works? Let's just present yeah. it, right? So you basically applied your twist, your marketing twister in a way and just made it more investable and just like <laughs> do the presentation basically, right? That's that's exactly what we wanted to do too. Like we knew that that's the the play to go about it. Although this is not the way to go a hundred percent of the time because when you buy a tool like this and you want to build something on top of it, there's something called technical debt. It's a debt that you're gonna end up paying in the long run. So you're gonna build a, a, a lot of services on a platform that's shaking. You haven't built it, and it probably wasn't built right to begin with. Luckily, in our case. It was really solid. Although we had to rewrite a bunch of code, the platform itself, the developers that build it, shout out to Vova, original developer, amazing guy. He built a solid platform. Like, you know, it, it was built like a tank. I'm just curious, like when you buy a product, does it does it always also come with the developers when you do it normally? Mm. Like from my experience or just the product? So. It depends how much money you have to spend. Uh, in our mm. case, we kind of didn't have the money to hire the the original developers, it would have helped a lot. That would have sped up our process immensely. But I had a little bit of technical experience. We had another co-founder that was a developer. So we could we we were comfortable uh, just taking it and doing it ourselves. Also, the original developers, we had an agreement with them that they would provide support for the next six months within a you know certain amount of hours per month, you know, they would just help us do things and they were very happy to do it. Every time we needed help, they they jumped on it. Partially because they really liked the product themselves and they didn't want to see it, you know, just go to waste. They wanted to, you know, make some money on it, but as well as, you know, see, see it thrive eventually. No, of course, because after that, it's even from the business perspective, you can say, oh, we actually created a platform for this startup, right? So if you, if you succeed, it adds of them course. social capital as well. One of the interesting topics is raising a pre-seed because that's, mm. that's what you basically did. Right? Before product market fit, before full validation, like a lot of traction, you raised funds to, well, to develop, yeah. to find the product market fit. A lot of founders, they struggle with this because they, oh, I have no traction. So I got I to gotta boil in this pre-seed thing for a year and get a few customers and only then I can talk to people. Mm -hmm. Could you share with me a little bit what's the... What's the mindset of like raising the pre-seed? How do you approach that? Like, how is that different from going to the seed round? Well, with the pre-seed round, you're always going to look at a tiny amount of money. It's not going to be like millions of dollars usually. I know there's cases and cases, but it's usually just a, a a little bit of money just to get you going. 
And you have to be really wise in the way you spend the money because you have to make it last as much as possible. So when um, trying to go, you, you can't really go to VCs, for example, with for a pre-seed, nobody's going to talk to you. Uh, there's a lot of VCs, and in my experience, at least, there's a lot of VCs out there that say they, they invest in early stage startups. A pre-seed is not an early stage startup, usually. So you should really try to leverage your your three Fs as I like to call them, your friends, family, and other fools to raise that initial bit of money. And, um, you know, jokes aside, we were extremely lucky to find the people that invested in, in, our, con- uh, in our company um, at, in the first like pre-seed round. And we were even more fortunate that the same investors wanted to double down and they're coming in the seed round with a little bit of money too. So, they really understand the product, the market, the problem, our solution, and they're really invested. So find someone that's passionate about the problem you're solving. Usually, you're going to end up being able to raise a little bit of money um, just to get you going. I've also seen a lot of companies have a lot of success reselling their product even before it's done. So you know, just promise that you're going to build a product in the next six months, and if you you know, buy it right now, instead of paying like $10 a month for it, you're going to just pay $2 a month for, I don't know, 24 months or for life. It doesn't even matter. There's a lot of ways to to get that initial initial traction. Well, wh- one of them you've mentioned is pre-sale, right? Because I, I don't really count luck as a strategy. But we, no, it's not. It, it, like, uh, like I, I always teach SaaS insiders, like, like luck and hope is not a strategy. So I know the more you do, the, the luckier you get the more you implement, right? So from your perspective, pre Funny how is that one works. Yes, uh, pre-sale is one of them, but are there any other strategies you would recommend founders to pursue to, to, to find their perfect like angel in the beginning? Yeah, so just do things that don't scale at first and then automate them. Meaning you're trying to build a SaaS that does X and Y for your customers. Instead of relying on the SaaS for the, first part of the time, just do it as an agency. It's people think that's very unrealistic, but if you look you know, closer to it, in most cases, or let's say in, in some of the cases, that's actually doable. Uh, it was in our case, we did these guides and onboarding guides and onboarding optimization as a service. And we then leveraged that connections that we had with those customers and then sold them a, an automatic, like no code solution on top of it. So it was very easy to make that initial sale. So if you if you can do it, if you can do it this way, that's an awesome way to do it. But if you don't, and you really, really need to get that initial capital, find SaaS companies that are successful within your community. It could be in your hometown, it could be in your country, and go talk to them. Like let's say out of 100, 10 of them might be willing to invest and are in a position to invest. Usually, one, once you go through the struggle of building a startup and you understand how, how difficult raising money is, you'll be more prone to actually helping like some a, a fellow entrepreneur that's struggling but has a really good product or a really good vision or a really good idea. And yeah, that's, that's definitely going to help. And I've seen that happen actually uh, not that long ago with uh, a buddy of mine. He managed to actually raise money that way. And it was... Very impressive. Interesting. One one figure you've mentioned is talk to 100 companies. Um, a lot of times I see people get discouraged by the first five conversations. 
because they don't set the goal properly, the percentage properly. So the first five five people tell them that they, their product sucks, and like, mm. well, maybe maybe it does suck. So like, what what's your take on this? Like, uh, how persistent? Like, for how long we should be trying on average to to get this number? And from your experience, from friends' experience, um, actually, you should not get discouraged. By those five people, I think you should make those people your friends and try to come back at them time and again and ask them for feedback. Because what usually happens is when you launch, we have an idea. You have this awesome SaaS idea. You go to your friends and they're your friends and they support you. They love you. They're going to say, dude, that's amazing. Jump head first into it and, and just do it. You're going to be, you know, balling in a couple of years. That's not how it goes. Those are not the people that are going to buy the product from you. Those don't even count. It's it's fine to have a support system. It's really helpful to have a healthy support system, but don't rely on them. Rely on the people that actually point out the flaws in your plan. Try to work out solutions with them. They most people won't mind giving you like their honest feedback. And think of it when whenever you're pitching the idea to your to one of these like potential customers, think of them as as an investor. And there's a few signs to know if their feedback is good and if they're really interested. One of them is they're going to say flat out, yeah, I would pay this much amount of money because they know a figure. That's a really good validation method. They know a figure. I'm going to pay 30 bucks a month, 300 bucks a month, 30,000 a month. They will know a figure how much that problem is costing them. And the second one, they'll ask very in-depth questions. And this goes for your uh, investors as well. Um, I've had a lot of meetings right now with investors, and I could tell if that meeting is going to go anywhere by the type of questions that they ask. If they go with generic question like "How many team members are you? What's the market? What's the whatever technical stack you're using?" That's good, but that discussion is not going to go anywhere. If they start asking you more detailed questions, that's a really good flag that you know they're they're actually interested yeah you should probably uh provide them as much detail as possible to, and try to get uh, get going that's deep that's deep one of the strategies i heard from another SaaS insider another guest is you approach potential clients or investors almost like friends to give feedback you're basically asking like hey i'm building this startup would you like to can I ask for 15 minutes of your time because you might benefit because I'm building potentially for you. Once he was asking those questions, like if they're actually interested, like that's interesting. Like, can I buy it right now? Or something mm-hmm. like, oh, how can I invest? And I'm like, well, you know, it's, I'm still raising money for this. So it's, it's a much easier conversation. Or if they say like this sucks and this sucks, first of all, they are not, they don't feel weird because when you're asking for money, it's, it's a bit hard mm-hmm. for personal nature to reject someone like it's it's in, yeah. in, in the dna like it's hard because from the tribal periods like rejection mm-hmm. means death right so it's it's really hard for them but if you're just asking for feedback they're much open like oh yeah you're just asking i'll give you all of those things right and it give gave him the opportunity to come back to them when it's solved mm-hmm. and say like okay what do you think about it now and they're like oh that's good how can i buy it you know? so it's it's uh one thing i, I found as well it's actually a really good uh, option. I've um, I didn't know this was a strategy. I've heard of it later on, but we kind of did the same thing with our first potential customers. That's how we went about it. We told them this is not a sales call. I just want to show what we have. This tiny nugget of an MVP. Would you care to just drop a few lines of feedback in return? I'm a I'm a 
I'm going to give you the product for free for a whole year. We landed so many people this way. I can't even begin to, to stress that. And the, and the good thing is, is that even if you have a crappy product at first, because you're giving them the product for free and building it in a way that it will help them first, they'll still use it and they'll provide feedback. They'll be happy uh, about it. So it's a really good strategy. Yeah. John, how do you, how do you see the things being different from the pre-seed to seed stage? Now, if I understand this correctly, you're at the moment while you're seeking investment for the next round, for the next yeah. for the next sprint. What do you think is different in this approach? Of course, uh, in addition to different numbers, uh, mm -hmm. in your presentation and the things you articulate to investors, what are what are the things that are different? The presentation to the investor has to be different. Uh, it should have it should be focused at this point. You should have once you go past the pre-seed, you need to have a focus. You need to know where your product is heading. Uh, if there's pivoting to be done, do it as soon as possible. I like my my. I had a a CEO Annika, and she she used to say this all the time: fail fast, fail often, but do it as fast as possible. And you know, if if it doesn't work, try it. If it doesn't work, move on quickly. And um, that's how we we ended up in the position where we are right now, where we're very focused on a particular problem and. We don't even care about the market and like, you know, what we name our, because the messaging itself, it's not really as important for us because we know what the problem we're solving and that's what we're targeting. We're, we're, we know who's using the product and for what reason. And we're just giving them the tool they need to make a better product. So focus is really, really important. You need to know what you're building and for whom. And also you need to provide some traction. You, there's got to be some traction behind it. It doesn't even matter. Money doesn't count. Like I was so surprised because we were pushing to get more sales and they were like, oh, so you made like, it doesn't matter. You made 10K, 40K a month MR. Most of them don't count. How many users, how many people actually come back and use your product on a daily basis, on a monthly basis? What's the churn? What are your reviews look like? And traction is everything. Um, at this stage, I think. And that, that's really important here because a lot of times we as entrepreneurs, we, we look at the revenue or profit as like the, the, the primary indicator of like, this is success or this is not a mm. success, right? I think at the seed stage, just like you've, just like you pointed out, it's more about growth, Alien. Like how fast yeah. we, can, we, can, we can scale that. Like, don't worry mm. about profit like this year, or maybe this half a year, right? Like how big can we go? Because I think they're investing more like in equity because they want to exit as soon as possible, right? So if, if it's series A, B, C, yeah, profitability matters. So if you're not profitable and, and you're expecting to be profitable, I mean, there, there might be a problem, but... Uh, yeah, it really yeah. depends on the product too. Uh, with SaaS products, that the main benefit, the main attraction of a SaaS product is the fact that it could scale, like you've mentioned. Like there's a clear hockey stick uh, approach to, to growth there. It has to scale. With the only thing you have to do, I think, my my personal opinion in the in the seed stage, in the pre-seed stage, is find one avenue of growth where you could say, hey, if I pay a hundred bucks in ads, I get a thousand dollars in revenue, you know, or whatever, something like that. Something that could scale. You you put one dollar in, you take two dollars out. And it could be anything. It could be content marketing, it could be, you know, different channels like maybe you find that the best way to sell your product is to Slack channels. It could happen. You just need to find one of them and then use this, the seed money 
to do two, two things, build a better product and to find more of this or scale this if it's just one. You're probably right now talking about unit economics, right? Customer acquisition yeah. cost and how it translates into, into scale. Can, can you explain why this is so crucial at this stage specifically? Like, and what kind of metrics you think are the most important to present? For example, from your perspective, what, what you are trying to, to achieve? They're crucial because if you don't know how much it costs to get a, a, a customer, uh, maybe, maybe acquisition cost is not even as important as figuring out a scalable way of getting them. If you don't know the numbers, if you don't know how much it costs to get them, how much revenue you can get out of a customer, like the lifetime value of that customer, how much money do you, do you know you need in that race round? Like need a hundred thousand, a million, five million dollars? Unless you have that micro unit figured out, you can't even look at the you know macro picture of it. It, it's really important to figure out how much a customer costs to get or a user costs, costs to, to get to the platform or to figure out what you know the lifetime of that customer would be. In our case, for example, we haven't spent a dime on ads. Ads could be a really good avenue for us for growth. We don't know because we haven't tried it. One of the things that we want to do in, once we get our uh, money is to actually do ads. We want to have a sales team. We'll Nobody in our team knows sales. What we know works right now is content marketing. And we've, we know content marketing works because we've done content marketing for years. And in, for SaaS businesses, I think it's it, it, almost 100% of the time work really well. Yeah. So we, we kind of have that first pillar of growth, the content marketing one. And, it, and it's really good. We're raising money to figure out what else might work. John, what do you think... Uh, changes in entrepreneurs' focus and priorities when they switch from pre-seed to seed. We have a lot of founders that have just raised seed and are going from there. We have the ones who are just approaching seed round right now. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the fundamental changes in you as an entrepreneur? Like what kind of things you prioritize on? Okay, it's the pre-seed round. This is what I'm prioritizing. Now we're approaching seed. What do you think will be done differently from your side? Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive, but when you get more money in your seed round, you're going to have to focus more on spending less of it. When we first started out, we had just a tiny little bit, like 155000 in the bank. But we used to spend it on like agencies to do X and Y and figure out, you know, what works and what doesn't. And that was a really dumb way to spend that little money that we had. What you have to do once you kind of get that seed round is make sure you, especially in the current you know, economic climate, you need to make sure that runway extends as much as possible. And then only have a binary focus on whatever you're doing with the money. You have zero and one. If the thing that you're about to spend money, time, energy on can equate to a positive result, meaning you know, money back or return on investment, it's a one. If it's not, or if it's in a you know long term, like six to twelve months from now, don't do it. Focus on immediate results and and go that out. Especially when you're looking at a seed round, it's gonna run out really fast because most of the time you're building a team, which costs money. You're gonna build an infrastructure because you're scaling your startup, and it's gonna cost a lot of money. And then marketing costs, or that's just you know. Run you, run you, uh, run through the roof. 
what you're saying makes sense because I was just listening to this uh, to this show from Y Combinator. If you're familiar with, uh, oh yeah, with big fan. Yeah, what they were sharing is one of the biggest mistakes that founders do with their money at the seed round as well is they invest like in experts and advisors. Let, let, let me grab that guy from Apple that has been working there for 10 years. Like he's getting paid like 400K per year, but we'll try to match his salary. We'll try to do it, right? Mm. So, or let my buy this PR agency services. Let us be in the publications. So it's kind of things that are not directly moving the needle in terms of getting mm-hmm. growth. But when people get the seed money, they they tend to, you know, let, let me try it. Let, let me see how it works. So we need to, we need to be more visible, visible. Yeah, and I would love for that to work. But usually whenever you bring one of these experts in, this is only because they're an expert. And that's usually a good thing. They will take a lot of time to understand every single bit, every single moving part of your system, which will cost a lot of money to do it. So you're paying a premium salary for somebody to learn everything from the get-go. Whereas if given the option, maybe somebody that you already work with can probably do that for less money, maybe, let's say just as, a, as efficient, if not better. So I'm a big believer in um, sticking with, sticking, dancing to with who brought you to the ball, you know? So I've, I've worked in companies where once we raised capital, we like hired leads, like tech leads from the outside and it stings from, for your current people, you know, that's no, that's not fun. Yeah, like you, all of a sudden, you're not as valuable as this new guy that just walked in the door. And like for the past 12 months, you've always been paid late, you know, a couple of weeks because, you know, uh, startup life. Yeah, that's one of the things I swore I I would never do is. It's almost like, please meet Rob. He'll be your new supervisor and he'll be paid six figures now, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you're like, okay, like what's going on, right? So it's... Uh, I, I've I been heard, sleeping at the office for the past two months. Like, what's going on? I heard a lot of times the way it works for established companies is, or startups as well, but the ones who got experience is when you bring someone at the higher management level and put them straight into the team, it creates huge resistance, obviously, mm-hmm. especially for the ones who were sleeping in the office in the past couple of years, right? Yeah. So yeah. what I heard working is inviting them as external advisor. Positioning it. It's like, hey, this is Rob. He'll be just consulting us on some things in a way to kind of to kind of get them to know the team better, just, just so they can use them, that he's not a threat. He's actually trying to help. It, he's external, yeah. he doesn't take your role, you know. And when when things start getting better, when they actually start creating some meaningful connection, then mm. you raise the point that maybe maybe we can bring him to the team. And now it's much less resistance because people already know him. So he's not. Oh, that's really smart. That's really smart. Yeah. One thing. Uh, It's like when it comes to CMO, new CEO positions, those kind of stuff, like who will be basically, you know, supervising a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. that's that's what I heard from VCs as well, what they recommend, Mm -hmm. because you need to put some smart people in those roles, especially when you're growing. But just putting someone random from outside, at least that's how it looks to the team, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. it, it sounds a bit threatening. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. And I think this goes, this is especially true for developer position because, uh, you know, developers code their, their project as their own babies. They pour their souls into it. And everybody has a secret recipe. 
Like they write uh, their functions in a very specific way. So when somebody else comes and smacks them over the head and says, no, that's wrong. That's not how you do it. It's hard not to take offense, you know? So these kind of relationship needs to be built over time. And this is actually like consulting in the project for a first, you know, couple of months is actually very small, very smart way to go about doing that. Yeah, because I mean, if you look at this, it's almost like a family and someone brings like, hey, this is going to be your new father right now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What's this... going on? So it's, uh, it's yeah, yeah. But I, I get it as well. If you were to give like one most important advice from your journey from Island, from the, from the pre-seed, acquiring mm-hmm. the product, building it, now going into seed stage. If you were to give an advice almost like to a younger self, if you were to go back in time when you were just starting with this, what would be like one or two things that you learned and would be like the most important to convey to those people? If it's just like one or two things they would take away from this conversation, the most important ones. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things. One is sale or market the product from day one. Don't wait until you have this, whatever version of polished product you have in your head. That's never going to happen. You're never going to have the product that you're happy with. If you think you have it, then maybe you're in the wrong wrong profession, you know, because you're never going to be happy with your product. And that's a good thing. But don't wait until like five months, six months, a year down the line. Sell it from day one. Meet with people, talk to them, tell them. I, I like to finish all my sales call with the like magic wand thing. I asked them, if you had this magic wand right now and you could smack, you know, eyelid with it and ha- create a, a feature for it, what would it be? Like, what would you like for it to happen? And some of them, actually, one of the best ideas for for Islet came from one of those discussions. And then you validate it with other product owners and, and SaaS businesses. And you talk to them, oh, what do you think about this? Would this work? And never focus on the feature they request. That's a very dumb move. You always focus on the task that it resolves. So apply jobs to be done when talking about feature and, and feature roadmaps. Don't look at features. Look at what they accomplish. That's the way to go about it because everyone's going to be like to do, you know, the same thing in a different way, you know? So, and the, and the second part would be, uh, I, mean, I don't even know if I should say this, <laughs> but I screwed up a lot. And if you're starting out, just expect that and embrace it because I've spent a lot of time kicking myself in the butt for things that I've said, done, didn't do, didn't say, just to accomplish something. So just accept failure as it comes and just embrace it from day one. It sounds so cliche, but it will help you so much. Just realize that, you know, everybody's human. People that you work with yourself are human. Accept it. You'll get further in life, but in your startup as well. If you just, you know, Except that you're going to fail sometimes and it's okay. Just always have that, you know, plan B in case something doesn't happen. What do you do? This is really cool, John, because I think absolutely any person on earth has this. Like, I don't care if you're Elon Musk, if you're just getting mm-hmm. started. When you're a philosopher and you're telling this someone, it's like, oh, you will fail. That's normal. Embrace it. It sounds like you're smart. But when this yeah. happens to you, you're like blinded, like, oh my God, why this happens to me? Why do I deserve this? It's not going to work, right? So it's when we're in the situation, like it, it really takes, it really takes probably character and like and willpower to actually remember that this is what you were been talking about. This is that it's happening. You're yeah, expecting this, that. 
yeah, this is it. You like you need to to get your plan B, circle around, pivot, do whatever it needs. But you have to do it. Like you mentioned, Elon Musk. Musk, can you imagine what it must have felt like? Like you spent months and months and millions of dollars to have this rocket shoot out into space and explode like like five seconds later. Four times. Yeah, four times. Four freaking times. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's figure out what went wrong and not do it the next time. And yeah, that's something that I had. I always had to struggle with. I, I still do, honestly. One of the things that I've started doing lately is like engage more with my the customers, my audience and whatever, like through LinkedIn or Twitter. And I'm still working on this. But what I still do to this day is I write this message and then spend the next hour just hovering over it, deleting paragraphs, adding new and explaining, worrying about if this, will this offend someone? Will this be too like a stupid post or, you know, stop doing that. Stop questioning yourself first, like do it, trust your instinct. It's, it, it really works if you do that. It's, it's interesting. Probably the, the, the more those situations come, the more you get used to them. Right. So oh, maybe yeah. like in 20 years, I'll be like, yeah, yeah. But I remember vividly my first couple of things like this. It's like, the thought is, this is the end. Like, like the, really, mm-hmm. this is it. Like, like this, this is end. Like, we're not going anywhere. There's no chance of surviving, right? But then I still push. And in two weeks, we get the growth, exponential growth, because like, we got yeah. to the, the hardest part, right? Like, disruption follows intention. Like, something happened, you learned from this, and this is why you're there. So it's, it's really it is a, It's a learning process. Like, the entire part is just going to, you're going to be slapped around a bunch of times. But, you know, just, yeah. just get up, keep going. I'm curious, what kind of resources you would recommend to SaaS founders to dig into it, to learn maybe about entrepreneurship, SaaS fundraising, maybe some kind of books, maybe, you know, some specific mm-hmm. titles you would like to recommend, maybe some uh, speakers, mentors, communities. What are the resources that you would equip the younger version of John to, to propel him even faster towards, towards their goals? There's a really interesting book, and I, I can't remember now i was trying to look it up right now kill something i i read it like a couple of years ago and it was really really good i'll i'll remember it and i'll pass it along but one of the most important things that you have to arm yourself when you, you go in this route is find a community find a community and leverage their support it doesn't have to be money like i'm not just talking about money's good money's good but unless you have people that you can rely on to give you an honest feedback and like pull you back sometimes when you're trying to, you know, jump the fence or it's, it's really, really, really important. It could be like one of those Slack communities it could be SaaS Insider. It could be anything. Just find one. It's, it's crucial and you, you got to do it. You got to do it. What would be the final thoughts to conclude our conversation? What, what kind of note you would like to, to wrap it up? Well, it's, I was telling you something before we started. If you do end up raising money, and it's something I heard the hard way, if you're, there's two rules. One is you don't fuck with VC money. Sorry, I said the F word. But the second one is don't let anybody F with your vision of the product. You got to trust yourself, get, accept constructive criticism, or actually accept all criticism that comes your way. But stay true to what you believe, because everybody's going to try to pull you in that direction Remember that everybody, everyone that has a hammer in their hands sees only nails, or nails around them. So remember that when you're you know, trying to navigate feedback and, and criticism and stay true, stay true to what you actually believe in. 
John, Damien, everyone. John, I thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. SaaS Insiders, we'll see you in the next episode.